0: Welcome, everybody, uh, to the latest episode of Bound Bounded Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shriver, CTO of Singlestone. And today I happen to welcome to my show, a uh, good friend, Paul Duvall. Paul's a fa- author, founder of Celigent and AWS Community Hero. Welcome to the program, Paul.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having
0: me. Well, cool. So, Paul, why don't you tell our audience a bit about yourself?
1: Um, yeah, so I uh, started a company along with my uh, co-founder. Uh, we, we, we actually called it Automation for the people um, uh-huh. that was back in in 2007 and it was based off of um, uh, An IBM article series I was doing okay. um, I think I had 20 articles or so at the time and then that was based off of um, the REM album nineteen ninety
0: four. It's like yeah automatic for the people right
1: automatic uh, for people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of said what you know what I was really most passionate about, and ultimately the the, the company was founded on uh, the idea of uh, my own personal like struggle or pain or, or whatever. Um, and uh, and that is you know as a software developer you end up spending so much time. Uh, you know these days it's it's a little bit better, but it's just it's just different in some ways. But you end up spending so much time on. Um, you know, the, the the non-business focus problems like configuration, infrastructure, things like that. And so ultimately founded that company, rebranded it to Stelligent um, in 2008. Um, and then it actually around that time that, that we started Automation for the People, um, um, the book on continuous integration came out. And I spent two and a half years on that. Um, and that was, you know, that was influenced uh, definitely by my own work, but of course, the work of many, many others, you know, Martin Fowler, and a lot of people at ThoughtWorks. there's a lot of people in that came back, a lot of people in the industry that were, you know, doing continuous integration. And I just, um, you know, just was really, uh, motivated by, uh, the, the kind of the benefits that you can get from that and, uh, allowing you to reduce assumptions and things like that. And so, yeah, so ultimately Stelligent. um, we, uh, let's see, we, we grew Stella was it was actually a, um, a bootstrap company. And so we grew it kind of little by little. And, you know, I, you remember in the early days when we were yeah. working with you, I mean, we were a handful of people and, and we grew it to uh, over 100 people. And, and ultimately, we sold the company uh, to emphasis and, um, and I, I still work, I still advise um, uh, the company um, from a strategic uh, standpoint.
0: Oh, cool. So so, so tell us, you know, with this focus on automation, how do you go in? Certainly customers have pain and and friction and those sort of things, but how do you go in um, and assess that? And kind of how do you focus on solving the problems? Can you walk us through sort of the approach uh, that you use?
1: Yeah, so an ideal. So we have something that we've done over the years, and and it comes in different names and flavors. and, and actually we've, we've automated more and more, more of those things uh, over the years in terms of how you assess an organization. Um, the, but the ideal scenario is that you do some kind of um, value stream mapping um, in which you're looking at from the point when, ideally when they have an idea, but even when, if you're looking at the point, uh, the deployment lead time, when, from when they have a commit, uh, into the uh, source control system up until uh, they actually get it out into production. And you know, usually that means lots of different, it's not just the software development teams, it's um, you know, especially in these the enterprises that we typically work with. I mean, you're talking about you know operations teams, security teams, uh, separate QA teams, even DBA teams. Um, and so oftentimes those organizations aren't even really communicating effectively. Uh, they might have, um, you know, they basically their communication is, you know, once every a couple of months, or you you have to fill out this form and things like that. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes what what we end up uncovering through that process is, hey, you're you're not talking to each other, you're not communicating. um, And here are the bottlenecks uh, in your system as a result of that. Um, And so ideally get to the point, it doesn't, we don't, uh, you know, this is more of, uh, Something that we strive for, and and it depends on the particular customer. Sometimes a customer might want us just go in there and solve a particular problem on a a particular application, but um, but really, you know, show them that visual, uh, show them illustration of where the problems are, because you can sit there and you know Dockerize everything, and and then you find out that you have this DNS uh, approval process that takes you know four to eight days or so to go through. So you can automate everything you can, you know, you can do what you can, you can improve what you're you can control. But if you're not looking at the whole system, and that's, that's just something that's always motivated me from, from the early days. Um, And and in fact, one of the very first uh, uh, projects I was working on, it was uh, for big uh, IT uh, integrate systems integrator, I ended up working on like, uh, I was doing like operations, and, and this is a huge system too. So it was uh, really fortunate because usually you get kind of, you know, siloed into something. And so I was working on like security um, uh, operations. I was doing the database, Unix stuff, you know, kind of across the board because I really wanted to understand how the whole system worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's personally what, what drives me a lot is, is not just look at, okay, someone tells you there's a particular problem or they even give you, you know, oh, we need to do containers or we need to do serverless or yeah. something like that. And instead really find out why they, they have that particular issue and, and what, uh, you know, start looking at the whole system and, and how that's impacted.
0: Yeah, I imagine like you're consulting like me a lot of times you get the, hey, we already come up with a solution. Can you just come in here and sort of build it? And you kind of have to be, well, hold on a second. Are you sure that either that's the right one or, or to your point or the bottlenecks upstream or downstream, that even if you put that in, it's not going to sort of solve your intent, goal, of like speed or agility or those sort of things. Exactly. So what you're describing really is is – Your philosophy kind of predated the whole what we call DevOps movement to today, but it really was more of that systems thinking end-to-end where it crosses the boundaries of development operations. How is your approach now? Is it easier to start with your approach now that DevOps has become a bit more of a a known term, if you will, for good and bad? Um, Or do you still get some sort of resistance thinking, well, DevOps is about tooling, and let's talk about cool tools. I mean, how how has that been, been changed over time?
1: you know, in some ways it's easier, some ways it's harder. Um, and I guess personally, you know, you know, not just being a software developer, an architect, but also an entrepreneur and and kind of looking for opportunities. I'm also looking just personally to, you know, what's, what's next and what are the more complex problems that, Mm -hmm. that need to be solved, but definitely the, um, I mean, like you said, there's, there's kind of pros and cons with the fact that, you know, people think they know what DevOps is, but, you know, from a uh, recognition standpoint, it's largely been, uh, uh, pretty helpful. Um, and, but yeah, sometimes people get stuck in that. Uh, and, and frankly, we sometimes get stuck in that too, uh, in, okay, you got, a particular set of tools and you have to that's why you have to kind of bring yourself out of that at some point in time and look at the the overall the big picture uh and how that impacts you know all the different teams all the different systems and and that's why it's really important to understand what your your lead times are uh, because in the end that's what's going to give you value and and I've, i've even seen organizations they'll say stuff like uh yeah we're doing continuous deployment to qa right and i'm just like what does that mean you know what's, what's <laughs> the qa um or or you know they know they have a problem getting stuff out to production but it's uh, dependent on other teams and so they're going to sort of measure what they can measure but that's why it's so important i think to to drive all this back to to value you yeah. know concept to cash or concept to benefit or value or whatever like that's really important to, to be able to measure that, understand that, and then figure out uh, areas that you can improve that. Um, And I I think that's where people still get stuck oftentimes and not, uh, you know, because DevOps, there's so much, you know, excellent tooling around uh, DevOps that they get stuck on, you know, the latest, and, and I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of containers, big fan of serverless and things like that, but they don't, they don't remember why they're doing what they're doing and, and that it's about speed and it's about safety uh, yeah. of, of uh, deployments and releases and so that you, you can get value.
0: It's funny because you use some of the lean terms and I can tell you a very really poppendike influence in terms of concept of cash. I don't know, but it seems like I know from early on, you were a big proponent of putting in lean metrics. Big mm-hmm. time throughput is all part of this sort of system thinking. How did you... Discover the lean sort of um, background and, and sort of that. How did you stumble on uh, that?
1: I mean, the first answer I would have would probably be the Pop Index, but I know it was actually before that. Okay. Uh, I mean that you know their lean books are just incredible. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I was I was interested in that when I was when I first worked at uh, EDS. I worked I was working in the mailroom, and uh, and then I got up, became a part of their systems engineering, <clears throat> excuse me, system engineering program. And it's like two year program where you, where you're actually working for a customer, but you're also doing like training stuff like that. And, uh, I remember around that time I came upon, like, I don't know why or what, but I think, you know, it was actually one of my managers, uh, gave me this book on Kaizen. Um, and, and then I got into like, uh, champions re engineering, uh, stuff. And yeah, and, and I just got really interested in that in that idea of, of, of continuous improvement, and then looking at everything's about the system. And it's about how you, what you do impacts that system. And, you know, that it, it's um, not so much it, it, things don't come so much down to the um, I mean, this is where I start getting into things like, you know, Carol Dweck's like growth mindset stuff, but like, it's not in the individual, the individual, the individual is important to the system. um, But that uh, it's important to, you know, have your particular uh, know what your role in that system is and know that your, your role, uh, you know, uh, significantly impacts the rest of the system. So.
0: Well, you know, speaking on sort of influences, who else has been sort of influential in your sort of evolution? From it's funny you started the mailroom. It sounds like some sort of script on in a, in a Hollywood movie, like you started at the mailroom and you sort of like you know worked, worked your way up. But uh, who, who else has been influential in sort of your your growth?
1: People like Martin Fowler and, yeah, and of course uh, Steve McConnell. Steve McConnell was definitely one of the. It was one of the first books I read, and Martin Fowler probably one of the second books, you know, it was just, it was one of the first few books that I really got into. I think it was, um, rapid development, I believe, uh, for, for Steve McConnell and, you know, and so it's been fortunate that, you know, I've, I've been able to, to work with them, uh, you know, a couple times, you know, my books in the, in the Martin Fowler series. And so I, you know, been in touch with him over the years and he's uh, given great you know mentorship. Um, and, um, and then, uh, a little bit with Steve McConnell as well. And so they, yeah, they've been huge influences. Um, and then, uh, other ones like, you know, anything around like kind of the systems mindset. I mean, like a little bit kind of out of the box, but it, it aligns with the same mindset as Atul Gawande. Huh. And I think, um, you know, the checklist, checklist manifesto is probably yeah. the. The one that's he's most well known for but you know so he's a physician and but if you look at the the approach that he has is very much a systems mindset you know it's about you know following some basic things uh basic rules like in the checklist uh manifesto uh to improve the overall system and i like the, you know he's extremely accomplished i don't know how he gets everything done uh but extremely accomplished but super humble not fake humble you know just really uh he's always looking to learn and so i I try to i personally try to emulate that as much as i can
0: i think i remember reading that book and wasn't it the b-17 that crashed that that, um triggered the first creation of a pre-flight checklist um because do you remember hearing or or, or seeing the story on where um, apparently a B-17 crash um, during the, the testing phase of it and it becomes so complicated to take it right. off that they had never before had to come up with it. And, and the guy invented a pre-flight checklist, which is just routine uh, t- today. But that was a tipping point. It, it crashed an airplane to say, hey, we need to, to take on this. And then I think he's in the medical space, right? So it's, it talks about a lot of surgeries that, right. that have a lot of mistakes when it goes back to sort of common things like having a checklist. And then having people want to use the checklist or having people think yeah. they're, not, they're not above the checklist is is, is sort
1: i of think that's that's the key thing, thing. and i yeah. think you know you you think of software engineering and systems engineering sometimes you know maybe there might be some arrogant types no. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, but um you know so i, I think sometimes people think oh, you know, if you know i'm gonna follow something so rudimentary then you know why do I have all this knowledge? Why, you know, this expertise to me, and I think about continuous integration continuous delivery, it's the same point in a way. Like that's the whole, the whole point is so that you don't, so you can actually use your cycles uh, for more novel things, you know, so that you're not, um, you know, something that you've done a hundred times, you know, automate it. I mean, that's, that's probably what's driven me personally into automation so much is that, you know, I'll see myself making these just silly mistakes. And, uh, and I'll want to, I'm like, I don't want to ever do that again. I know how to do that. I forgot. I messed up whatever. So I want to automate that. And that's kind of driven, you know, a lot of what I've done over the years.
0: Yeah, well, it was a little lazy, like a fox, right? <laughs> uh, but, but you mentioned something that just clicked to me is really think about pipeline, uh, continuous integration pipelines, really was just an automated checklist of uh, it's, ba- it's the most basic element. To, to, exactly. to, it's a basically i check my code in and tell me what should run. And then it's ready right. for, you know, actually, it,
1: it, exactly. It reduces your assumptions. And that's, that's always been a big thing for me. It's like, I think that's where the, you know, one of the biggest uh, problems we have sometimes is the assumptions that you make. Um, and if you can bake those assumptions into code, uh, and run them the same way get get you know a uh, essentially a dumb computer to run it for you every single time so you don't have to worry about it that's great and then keep on adding those things as uh, uh you know adding those automated checks in that checklist um you know every, every time you find them
0: yeah it's interesting because it used to be the computers were expensive and people were cheap but now it's sort of um you know the, the inverse, and what I've noticed historically, we'd have to push our customers to do things like test automation. They didn't want to invest in it. It wasn't, it wasn't a feature. It wasn't going to get the user excited. And I haven't noticed over the last ten years it's become much more of a people or well, businesses willing to accept and want to pay for some amount of um, basic automation. Whereas historically it was a tough conversation to have. I mean, do you yeah. see the same things?
1: Yeah, That's the reason why you know, kind of going back to well, what are you trying to accomplish. You know and working with the the business part of the organization um are you trying to accomplish speed and quality you know quality is basically safety because i, I look at safe what well, the reason i personally use safety i know others use it as well because you think about security right quality all those kind of checks um in that and if you go back to the, if you're trying to to get that uh value there's no other way to get that quality or uh you know it all comes back to speed, all that, that safety without uh, some type of tests uh, automation static analysis um, those types of checks uh, and yeah in uh, companies we work with over the years definitely seeing that change and especially if you bring it back to what you're trying to accomplish
0: so, so when you wrote the ci book it was really pre-cloud. i mean it landed right at the very dawn a, a, a sort of cloud. And I remember both the reading at the time and I was a cruise control user at, at the time and we automated as much as we could, but the server was something like off limits. Like you, you simply could package it and, and drop an ear file and restart WebLogic, but that was about the sort of extent of, you know, 2005, 2006 timeframe. And so I know you guys were, you personally and were were a big early adopter of AWS. Um, so, so how has the cloud changed you know, and how did when you were writing that book, did you have a sense that AWS was around the corner or did you write that based on sort of virtual servers? And then and then the, the cloud came in,
1: I guess, technically, AWS existed when the book was published. I wrote most of the book um, between 2004 and 2006. I think I submitted early 2007. So I think AWS was out for maybe six months or something like that at the time. Um, I didn't know about it yet, though. Uh, I think I became aware of it in 2008 um and it was it definitely kind of one of those light bulb moments once i saw it and it, and even before that i remember i was working with a customer at that time and i was you know workshopping some some ideas with them it was it was just based off of you know we, we had come up with some patterns we had we we're working with like a hundred different uh software development teams and we were helping them implement uh, continuous integration and uh, and sort of other, you know, testing, you know, just of course testing is part of CI, but like just the whole, kind of the whole thing, but all the way up to production. So ultimately what you would refer to as continuous delivery, which is, we didn't have those those terms yet. And at that time, I remember we we were talking about, uh, I, I had mentioned this thing like scorched earth environments. <laughs> <It's not laughs> <a good. laughs> but yeah, I mean, it gets the point across maybe. Yeah. Um, but I think we, we ultimately reframed that to we were calling them disposable environments. And this is, um, I think Puppet was out at the time, although we weren't we weren't using it yet. And so this is like 2007 uh, timeframe. Um, and so, you know, when AWS, when I became aware of AWS, EC2, you know, S3 and all that, it was just like, Man, that was it. I knew that that was going to change the world, um, and uh, and it did. And you know, we we were we we were always working with enterprises, and so they were, you know, they were yeah. kind of slow to adopt. Yeah. So at that particular customer, we were using it for like dev and test environments, um, but it was really cool because we were able to do those disposable environments, and we were able to say we were able to. Pinpoint the problem in the early um, environments because we were building everything from scratch, uh, and we were doing it just—it was, just, you know, of course, Bash is in there. Bash yeah. is always; in there. it will always be in, in systems. <laughs> but, so Bash was in there, but and I mean, we had all these answers. Anyway,
0: like so. So, so that was pre-cloud formation days. Is that what you said? That was sort of pre-cloud oh, yeah, formation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wait wait. There's,
1: yeah pre-cloud and uh so we're, we're how we're doing that um yeah i think we just had scripts that were launching the uh yeah we we're using the aws cli okay. um, and yeah so but yeah when cloud formation we, you know we the second it came out we started using that uh, but uh yeah we decided to go all in um around 2013 i think that's when we started working together i yeah. mean i think i first met you when the book was coming out or somewhere around that yeah you
0: came down uh, i ran the java user group in town and you came down right yeah you came down to do a, a talk here and i think do you, were you in the no fluff just stuff tours yeah. at that time it could no. have been how dj we, we got connected but um no i remember you were coming down here onto uh, richmond for a little bit in that time frame yeah.
1: so i was always you know that kind of comes back to the reducing assumptions i think that one I was probably talking about. There was a chapter in the book called uh, "Continuous Database Integration," and um, and it was again the same idea. Like, how do you how do you define all this stuff as code? And that was just it was almost heresy at the time. You know, like, okay, you're going to find your database, your DDL, your DML, or whatever. You know, for relational database, you're going to define all of that code. You're going to completely you know build environments anew. Um, and uh, so it. Um, you know, it's it's a place I'm kind of comfortable in, honestly, I'm, I'm probably less comfortable when, you know, when, when people are like, uh, oh, this, this person knows everything there is about, you know, CI and CD or whatever. I, I'm more comfortable in the place where uh, I'm trying to fight for, you know, something I strongly believe in that other people just don't, you know, aren't, they're not following along just yet, you know. I, re- I remember talking to the operations team about the scorched earth or the you know disposable environments concept, and they were just like their heads. Uh, I mean, I was talking; yeah. with, uh, their heads must have exploded. So, um, but you know, nowadays, you know, people do that like it's nothing, or don't even have to worry about that with serverless. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, and when it first sort of come out, I would see ops teams like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job, or, oh, my God, I'm going to get automated out of a job, right? That was at least that initial fear, and then when you sort of work with them, it's like, well, a lot of mundane stuff that you hate to do anyway, you know, focus on automation of those, like patching, configuration management, and those sort of things. Right. I just...
1: One of, the things, <laughs> one of the things I would say to people that would be concerned about their jobs, I, would, I was saying, well, if you don't learn how to automate this stuff, then, yeah, you, you might want to be, you might be concerned.
0: So, <laughs> so Paul, you've, all, you've always impressed me with not only your sort of vision of what's going to come and your entrepreneurship, but you have like six AWS certs. You've always been very hands-on. Um, and, and a lot of that, and that's something I've struggled with, I know a lot of people struggled with. Is like, how do you maintain that balance, and how do you have time to be both a leader of a, of a growing company and that, and also get the hands-on time? Um, so you still have those sort of good jobs. How do you balance that time?
1: That's that's a hard question. So um, that's always been important to me, though. Uh, and I, you know, kind kind of going back to the the idea that I, I'm probably more comfortable struggling <laughs> than, than not like uh, I, I think if you're gonna be you know a CTO or you know you're gonna be a leader in an organization I think it is important to have uh, you, you can't go too far you can't you know you know spend all your time coding or or whatever but uh, it's important to I think have that um, knowledge of you know not only you uh, with the with the business value is going to be, but also the architecture, and then and even getting down to the point of um, of coding. I just you know, I just personally love doing it, and so that I mean that's probably driven me more than anything. Um, but also uh, because I like I like the struggle, and I like to, to learn uh, new things, and 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 so yeah, the certification part. I know people have different views on that, and I think. Uh, you know uh, for me it's it's actually been a, it's always been a great learning experience so i'll find out some of the stuff that you need to know on the exam and mm-hmm. um and then i'll learn those areas and so i'll give it actually a good bit of time i um rather than i mean i still cram at the very end but um i'll give it you know a few months so that i can really digest the information learn it kind of going go through the Go through the process that I have and in, in, in learning those things, but yeah, I, I don't know what the. I mean, I, I look at people like you and 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 others that I interact with, and and I feel the same way. Like I think about you, <laughs> I think the same thing. Like, how do you balance it all? It's
0: hard. Yeah, it's hard. Nuts. Let me ask you another question. Like, with the prevalence of DevOps tools these days where do you see people still struggling? Is it still with the same basic, like value stream mapping sort of interaction or do you see the struggles, like we've solved some problems with modern DevOps tooling and maybe even mentality. I think a lot more people embrace the concepts, but where do you see customers struggling still today, even though there are all these great tools and great environments uh, like AWS?
1: Um, Yeah, I I guess I I still feel like the biggest struggle is for, for it not to be a pure um, tooling, you know, um, perspective or or looking at it from a, a, you know, that's a tool problem and realize what it is that they're doing, why they're doing it and, and, you know, going back to to the the value they're trying to achieve. And so the biggest problem to me is not having kind of their business counterparts involved in the conversation. I mean, still today, Yeah, we we'll often come through the IT part of the organization, and you know, to try to you know do our best to facilitate the conversations between the technical um, and and the business side. Um, But in terms of um, in terms of you know to talk about the tooling uh, aspect, I would say that um, databases are still yeah they can still be you know especially relational databases that can be Uh, challenge testing. Yeah, that's definitely a um, well-developed skill, you know, in terms of how you approach testing. And it's not so much like test themselves or, or, you know, the tooling itself. That's actually quite easy. It's like thinking about uh, what's your hypothesis and, you know, what's um, and how do I test for that and making sure you have uh, a a proper coverage. I mean, you, you know, Person where things get interesting to me, and I see this is this has been happening over the years, but like the idea that um, really your 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 real tests are in production, mm-hmm. right? And to have you know things like canaries and and being able to pull that information back into your pipeline and and realize that you know if there's something if there's a problem in production it needs to become you know the, the top priority uh, and then that needs to be that information needs to be, uh, brought back onto the, uh, brought back to the development team. And so, you know, there's a lot of interesting techniques in terms of, uh, of testing in production. And so, but I don't, I still see that as still, you know, relatively early days.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. are you talking about sort of the chaos engineering movement or something sort of yeah. more than just that? that? Definitely that's,
1: that would be a part of
0: it. But, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I was lucky enough to go to one of the early um, Dave Hudson, my uh, Dave Hudson, who was another um, sort, of, sort of hero of mine. I went up to see him at one of the early chaos ones. And I remember they had some pr- presenters on stage. And one of the people said, we're doing chaos in, QA, in our QA environment. And everybody was like, boo. And I was like, damn, hard crowd here. Like, And this guy got up and he was really proud of all the chaos. But as soon as he said, and we're doing it in our, in our testing environment, you know, one of the people were like, that's not real chaos, you know, and you yeah. just sort of getting shouted down from the back of the room. Like you got to do it in production otherwise. And uh, <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. Um, Casey and all of them were there and there, of course, I didn't know them at the time, but I later learned sort of who, who they were and what they've sort of done at Netflix. And, um, um, but it's, it's, I think that is a huge trend where things are, are continually going to is yeah. as, as we well, designed, go ahead.
1: Yeah, you're just talking about the QA part. I mean, this is, I guess I've always sort of been the anti-dogma. You know, I don't ever fit into any of these crowds, you know, <laughs> the crowd or whatever. And and I, I agree that chaos is not chaos unless you're talking about production. However, it is a stepping point. You know, if you sit there in QA forever, yes, that's a problem. But I tell you what you don't do is you don't just run your, immediately run your chaos in production. I mean, you wow. can do that. Yeah, yeah. So you want to know how that goes?
0: How not to make friends in your organization? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So, so to, given the the big advancements today, what are the topics on top of your mind? Like, what do you think are the are the trends that we're either on the cusp of or really starting um, um, to sort of take flight?
1: Yeah. So, um, I think um, event-driven architectures. That's yeah. I mean, that, that is huge, and that's impacting a lot of different areas. And so, like a personal interest of mine is around um, security um, and kind of the, I, I personally call it continuous security. And the reason I think, you know, so there's definitely DevSecOps and that's a thing. I don't, I've never loved the name, but you know, it's a <laughs> thing, right? And, and it basically means applying security. Uh, and, and the reason I don't like it is because it it really should be a part of DevOps. You know, you don't need to call it out. But the red fact is you, you you do need to call it out. Because there are certain organizations that aren't, uh, you know, they're still looking at security as d- downstream or after release or a check, you know, a, ch- a manual checklist item or something like that. And so uh, things going on in terms of vendor driven architectures around security. And so when I say continuous security, I mean, so definitely security in your, you know, through sort of your application pipelines, but I, I've always looked at um, like pipelines should be for everything, so they should be. You know, just have them at different. There's they're different life cycles. So you might have pipeline for your network, for your database, um, for your environments, and then you have your application pipeline. But so you know, same thing for security. And so you know, when you're setting up your guardrails uh, in, say, your AWS environment, or you know, setting up your AWS accounts uh, and setting up those guardrails, then you know, you should be automating that the same way that you do the rest of your, uh, your, rest of your infrastructure, and so when it comes to event-driven architectures, that's you know in security, so you're you're automating that, you know the the provisioning of those tools and services and, and so forth, and you're putting those in a, in a pipeline for provisioning those, you know on your on your accounts, but then what you're doing is in in this uh, event-driven security, you're you know, on a regular, essentially a real time basis, effectively a real time basis, you're looking for any um, changes that might, um, you know, vulnerabilities, potential, um, uh, any, um, anything that's going to um, not follow your particular best practices, right? So maybe someone created a user and they they didn't apply MFA uh, to the user or um, how your VPC got set, whatever your, your particular rules are, or encryption's not turned on, maybe it got turned off on a on a particular service, and you notice that. And when I, sorry, when, you, when I say you notice that, you have systems that notice that, right? and then you have uh, so it automatically t- detects those um, those changes, um, and then uh, can can automatically remediate those, um, or at least provide recommendations on how you might automate. Um, that the next time, uh, or you might you can also set it up, and this is something that we've we've done where you can set it up where you can be become a part of the entire life cycle of the provisioning, the implementation of the security, the detection of um, a security issue error, and then ultimately the remediation. The remediation might be a part of your um, uh, your uh, your ticketing system, right? So someone. Uh, is has to manually fix that but then that's part of it, a fully automated workflow. so you think you know things like step functions, AWS step functions would be an implementation of something like that where you close the loop uh, and so you're reducing the time between detection of a security issue uh, and then the ultimate the remediation and then you have full visibility into this. And so we're just scratching the surface on stuff like that. And so that, that's personally really interesting. Um, it's enabled through things like, you know, serverless, you know, mm-hmm. under the hood, all that stuff, you know, like whether it's AWS config rules or um, event bridge, CloudWatch event rules, uh, yeah. and then Lambda remediation or systems manager reading remediation, those types of things, that's all, you know, that's all, um, uh, all it's in It's a Lambda
0: functions code yeah. code, yeah. Exactly,
1: it's all code, it's all, it's all serverless,
0: right?
1: Yeah. So yeah, but separately, that's, that's another uh, area. Um, Another one I just recently got into, and I'm working with a colleague on this. He knows a lot more about <clears throat> IoT than I do. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, it's In some ways, I feel like we've gone back like 15 years because you're like, you're configuring all these sensors uh, and you have to like apply configuration management to them. They're, they're basically like little servers, right? I mean, they are. Um, and so that's, that's another interesting area and like how do you apply continuous delivery to IoT, and, and we've done that uh, uh, in, in some respects with, with customers already. So
0: it's funny, I'm working on one of my projects right now is going through a customer 1700 controls that got dumped a spreadsheet and seeing which ones can be automated and which ones not. Okay. Yeah. And so these are all around IT and, and security and those sort of things. And What's fascinating is there's a giant, like this like, okay, I, this team goes to this system and manually logs this in and they do all this. You, you see the way these are written. You can certainly see from a detective perspective, there's a good likelihood that something detective could, could could discern that or right. match things up. But, but these were all controls written for more processing people. And over time, they just built up and built up and built up and built up. And now it's like a tax. I mean, it's it's like a tax on the organization because they have to be secure, right? The financial services, but they can't ignore these, but it's more and it's more and it's more and it's more. And it's pushed that threshold of like, we got to find ways to automate um, these things. Yeah,
1: And then uh, I had written an article um, a couple months ago about uh, exponential, I think I call it exponential cloud security, basically Mm -hmm. applying you know, um, these exponential technologies because you can't catch up. I mean, there's like, I think they said in 2021, there's gonna be 3 million open jobs in the security space, you know, the IT security wow. space, something like that. And, you know, you, you can't, there aren't enough people to fill those jobs. And so you really have to uh, look at exponential technologies, like definitely automation is can help with that, but only to some extent. And so, you know, things like machine learning, machine learning uh, yes. you know, that, and then, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with automated reasoning. Uh, that yeah. was an area that was introduced to me, I guess, at Reinforce last year, AWS Reinforce. And basically, you're applying math, uh, you know, these proofs to uh, to your infrastructure. In the case, they've actually integrated this into, I think it's Amazon Inspector and AWS Config rules. Okay. And so, an, ex- an example in Amazon Inspector, it's called um, Zelkova, I believe, is sort of the code name for. It. But if you, if you just go into Uh, config rules, you can type cell cova, and I think eight or nine config rules come up. Um, But what what it does is it it goes through it applies this mathematical model so that you don't have to actually instantiate the infrastructure uh, in order to test it. Um, And so it it goes through like these millions of combinations um, against like a network like a VPC to determine whether or not, you know, uh, you have uh, potential uh, access, um, you know, from the internet or, or, you know, uh, ingress that you weren't intending or egress that you weren't intending, things like that. And they'll, they'll provide those warnings uh, for you and you could have a remediation around that.
0: uh, And it does that before it's instantiated. In other words, it's looking at the code you're using to stand up your VPC and looking for vulnerabilities. Is that, is that what you're saying? Or is it actually running on a live VPC and looking for those? um,
1: that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, I guess if they were looking at like cloud formation, I don't think that's what they're doing. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but, uh, but yeah, the idea that uh, maybe it is something that you, you've, you've stood up, but you don't have to exercise all the, um, all the different paths yeah. that you would like in as you know, a test or even machine learning uh, yeah. applying that to it. Uh, it's sort of a, a it's, it's complementary to machine learning for sure but it's just a, a different way of doing it, yeah, I, think one of the, doing
0: it. Well, I know you go to all the aws or revents and well, I, i've only gone to a handful one of the most important talks i saw was how i think was how amazon.com uses 10,000 aws accounts or something like that and i was went there and floored and blown away and they went through a lot of what you described which is you know as we're creating new accounts and creating all the stuff there's no time for manually reviewing all of that stuff and so they had to set up lambda driven systems that would detect the change go through some analysis and flag it for follow-up or not um but it's it's one of those sheer scale problems where you know most customers you're gonna have a couple accounts or you know so it's not something you would ever think about automating and when i came out of that talk it 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 told me that account-centric workloads or workload-centric accounts with some oversight was really going to be the way things are going to go because the account was a new level of architecture yeah. Whereas historically, the account was the data center or some portion, logical portion of the data center and application wise, we did everything within there. And I left that talk thinking as a software architect, the account was a new unit. Like I should be able to provision my account with the right config rules, stamp it out, have things set up and standardized. And so I left that talk and we've been over the last couple of years trying to introduce that to, to customers. It's just like, hey, you know, you don't just want one or two giant accounts called prod and test or, or something like that or, you know think about no. these workflow specific accounts and think about automating everything from the account creation on down, not just assuming that stuff is sort of set up. So yeah, like
1: using AWS organizations and,
0: and yeah, things. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a software. And I, I don't go nearly as deep in AWS as you do, but as an architect, when I saw that, I'm like, aha, like that just made a whole lot of sense to me in terms of how they set up organizations and now config rules. And to your point, I think we're just scratching the surface.
1: There's a guy at AWS, he actually just, he's one of the developer advocates, I believe. Um, and but he just moved over there, I think, uh, last year. One of the things he does is he launches a new AWS account every single day. I'm like, <laughs> that is, that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it's it all cool. automation. Yeah. You know? I'm like, that's what I should be doing. I mean, that's, uh, that's
0: sort of your be. dream gig, right? Just uh, cranking out a bunch of automation, automated the set of accounts. Yeah, well, cool. Um, so in the, in the interest of time here, I'm going to wrap up with with a fun one. So, what 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 are you listening to these days? Uh, um, do you have any music or um that that's top of mind? I'm going to call you out because you may not remember this, but we went to one of the early AWS. Remember they may have had that rave there? That, and I don't listen to EDM music at, at, at all, but I think it was like Skillerex. I think it was one of those early ones.
1: <laughs> it's ridiculous. Skillerex.
0: Yes, yeah, Skillerex. You remember? You remember that reinvent? I think it was like. 20, <laughs> well, anyway. I was, a, I was naive <laughs> to EDM, and the only my only exposure to EDM has been via Amazon conferences. But I remember chatting with you, and you were something like, you go, I'm a big, like, I used to be like a Lincoln Park fan or something like that. You, and I was like, interesting, interesting. But but share with our folks, what are you listening to these days? Who are your so many influences?
1: It's funny. Yeah, definitely because of the AWS. I've been to every single AWS reInvent, and I guess since it's uh-huh. virtual this year, I'll, I'll go to my ninth one or whatever it is at this point. But yeah. Um, yeah, I only got into the EDM from the AWS conferences, and uh, so I, yeah, I, it's hard to even be able to, you know, I definitely listen to it, but I listen to a bunch of random stuff like on Spotify, yeah. um, and so that's that's one aspect, but th- yeah, I definitely like the Lincoln Park still, <laughs> uh, but. Um, uh, or you know, like heavy stuff. I remember when I was writing the book, I was I was listening to like a bunch of like you know Metallica and stuff like that. Yeah, which is crazy to think that a book would come out of something like that. But um, yeah. And then um, I I really I I I like most most types of music. Um, uh, you know whether it's like I like classical, like um, you know, like cinematic type stuff. You know, really. Uh, and then. You know, like my dad was into big band and uh, so I'll, I'll listen, especially uh, this year. I've been listening to that quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty uh, it's it's all over, but I probably it's a lot of heavy stuff and and EDM and and then some
0: classical. Yeah, We're cool. Man. cool. Well, Paul, thanks very much for coming on the program. I enjoyed our conversation and um, best of luck with you. We, I know you're advising, but um, who knows what's going to happen after that. But best of luck and congratulations, by the way, on 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 um, sort of the success of I've long admired you and, and, and watching from afar and appreciate all of your help with helping us sort of, and, and me personally, kind of get off on the ground in the space, so appreciate sure. it.
1: Yeah. yeah, thanks a lot, yeah, it was a lot of fun.